Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, no matter where you live uh, in the world. It is hard to believe that uh, today marks the start of a new month. Uh, Hard to believe we are already into February. But I must say time is moving quick. I think I seem to say that a lot, but one thing that has remained a constant norm is the number of followers, and not just the number of followers, but how many people are um, very uh, enthusiastic about what they are being uh, taught through um, the podcast segments I have uh, been able to provide you all with. Uh, That, to me, has been a great norm. It's a relevant norm. It's a norm that um, tells me that um, a lot of you are eager to learn more about a particular person or, or an event that happened, uh, whether it was two centuries ago or if it was an event that happened uh, within the last uh, 50 years or or over. You know, yes, we think we learned everything there was to know about a particular event or rather a person, especially in the the scenario or uh, case rather with what we're talking about in this uh, podcast uh, book topic series with Benedict Arnold. Just when we think we've learned everything there is to know, We're always uh, learning something new, and in some instances, we're learning um, information that, yes, can be for the better. We're also learning information that, to some of us, could be disheartening, but whatever information we're learning, we must uh, take that information and um, know how to go about uh, going forward in the right direction so that um, perhaps a, a lesson that we learned is one that um, won't repeat itself um, in the near future. So, yes, uh, as I've said before, and I'd say it again, um, yes, I do enjoy, uh, I always enjoy learning what interests me with regards to history, but I also have to remind myself that there have been plenty of times throughout uh, mankind's existence where history has not always uh, presented itself with the uh, greatest of results, In other words, the results that have come about have um, either jeopardized one group of people in terms of their well-being or they have um, caused such displacement to where um, to where uh, whatever um, to where whatever norms existed in the past uh, cannot uh, be um, they can't be uh, reborn. In other words, um, whatever destruction occurred leave scars uh, on those who've been oppressed uh, to where um, they aren't able to return, say, to their um, native homeland. Not trying to sound political, but that's usually what has happened throughout uh, history, not only in America, but uh, elsewhere and uh, various other parts in the world. It doesn't make it right, but sadly it's uh, happened that way since the beginning of time. Uh, But what I do know is that we have a lot of ground to cover in this uh, podcast uh, topic uh, series um, episode, or rather I should say segment episode, to the tragedy of Benedict Arnold by uh, Joyce Lee Malcolm. In this uh, podcast segment episode, we're going to learn, well, we're going to continue to learn uh, whatever is uh, necessary, but I can tell you this much, we will uh, learn about um, journeys, well, I wouldn't say journeys, but a journey into New York State where there are some uh, crucial forts. Crucial forts who um, m- that might allow um, a means of access uh, not only to um, 
the Continental Army, but a means of uh, accessing um, essentials. You know, when I think of forts, uh, I tend to think of, say, like gunpowder, um, other means of uh, provisions, such as uh, various, um, you know, forms of ammunition, like muskets, rifles, even pistols, for that matter. So we're going to learn if Benedict Arnold uh, partakes in, a, in an adventure that, um, that will help... Um, secure the essential uh, provisions that might um, help benefit the uh, greater uh, cause in, um, in allowing uh, American forces to be able to take a stand against the um, mightiest empire in the world, being that of the mother country of England. We will also get, um, you know, when, when we ended off uh, from the previous podcast segment, we talked about how um, there was an engagement at Lexington Green on April the 19th of 1775 at Lexington, Massachusetts. So we have to wonder going forward, how did that um, skirmish follow? How did it go about? Well, that's going to be our first uh, leadoff question. So again, we have a lot of ground to cover, so we've got to make sure that we get all of this um, in, and we've got to make sure that we do it right. So here we go. Uh, which two prominent Massachusetts leaders adv- advocated tirelessly for Massachusetts's people to be properly armed, given British troops led by General Thomas Gage were already in pursuit of seizing essentials from gunpowder to arms? Well, when I think of Massachusetts, I think of uh, that colony as the cradle for American independence. I mean, really, if, if you think about where the seeds of American independence might have been uh, planted, uh, it's fair to say it's uh, Massachusetts. But, And I know that there are many um, prominent uh, Massachusetts leaders whom went above and beyond to um, advocate for independence. But if there were two whom had advocated tirelessly for Massachusetts people to be uh, properly armed, given the current uh, circumstances facing the uh, Bay Colony with General Thomas Gage and his um, troop forces on the move, those two men would be none other than John Hancock and Samuel Adams. John Hancock uh, signed a resolution being an agreement, an agreement form or document on March the 24th, 1775, prompting the Massachusetts Colony to be allowed to enter into a full state of defense against an, against enemy intrusion. Well, in this case, enemy intrusion is uh, in reference to uh, the British, whom are already in Boston, but the people of Massachusetts need to be allowed to enter into a full state of defense because, you know, if it's one thing for the British to make their way into town, or not just into town, but into uh, multiple towns, but if they're going to start... Um, making an attempt to break into people's homes and they don't have any means of probable cause. They don't have any sufficient uh, means of being able to say, hey, Mr. and Mrs. Jones, we need to search your home because we we have enough probable cause to believe that you all are uh, hiding um, X, XYZ amount of uh, provisions that, um, that are deemed uh, dangerous to the well-being of the uh, Bay Colony. Well, if they don't have probable cause, then um, the townspeople need to do what's necessary to arm themselves should, in the event, 
an intruder being that of a, not just a British troop, but a British unit that would be um, ravaging not just one person's home, but perhaps a uh, shop where um, other essential items might be stored, or even a church. After all, you know, shops, churches, taverns, those are places where people do convene. So yes, people do need to um, have some uh, form of um, security in the event uh, enemy intrusion is about to take place. So the Massachusetts, various Massachusetts uh, militias are assembling right now that is not just gathering in terms of drill purposes or drill tactics, but they are assembling stocks, or rather I should say supplies of weapons, being the muskets, the uh, rifles, pistols, whatever means of um, whatever means of weapons one has access to as a means of uh, defending themselves against um, an enemy. Uh, and not just um, supplies of weapons, but how about gunpowder? You know, you've got to have gunpowder as a means to, um, for being able to um, put into that weapon in order to um, fire off. Then you have other um, essential supplies, like, say, cartridge boxes, where you can um, put your gunpowder in, or your uh, lead balls to, that might be put into, say, a musket or a rifle. So you have to have uh, an assortment of things. It's not just one um, item. But, the, uh, but whenever I think of uh, supplies of weapons that uh, Massachusetts militias are assembling, including gunpowder and various other supplies... I tend to think of what was happening at Concord and even uh, west of Concord in a place called Worcester, about 50 miles west of Boston, where those two areas um, had the greatest concentration of uh, stashes in the form of uh, military, um, vast military supplies. But the further these supplies are stashed from Boston, the greater the likelihood that it's going to become uh, much harder for uh, British uh, troop forces to be able to uh, seize upon um, such uh, valuable items. So, uh, and plus two, it's not so much a question of knowing that the British could have potential to seize these items. The Massachusetts uh, militia groups know that the British are more than likely going to embark upon a journey from Boston to Concord. Now, uh, Concord and Lexington are west of Boston. I want to say they're at least 20 miles. You know, to us, this would be an easy day trip. It, now, it is possible to say that uh, that the British probably could make it from Boston to uh, Concord in 20 miles, in one day alone, 20 miles. But remember, we don't have cars and interstates, so it's not um, it's not going to be a quick shot. But the bottom line is that uh, Massachusetts's uh, militiamen know that there is going to be a, a, a strong likelihood of an engagement between um, militiamen and uh, British regulars uh, somewhere along um, somewhere along the outskirts of Boston. Uh, most notably, it could be at Concord. Well, besides uh, Paul Revere, Samuel Prescott, and William Dawes embarking on excursions to warn the townspeople of imminent British troop advancings, a handful of other courier riders contributed as well. 
I know it's very easy to assume that, oh, it was just Paul Revere who did all this work on his own and, you know, went out into the countryside late at night on April 18, 1775, warning everybody left and right like there was no tomorrow. Oh, hey, the British are coming. The British are coming. No, that's not how it worked, folks. So if, what, if you were told that story years ago, um, just remember that that was a myth. Uh, and the reason why, uh, one reason why is because, you know, yes, Paul Revere was a very important um, figure in the Revolutionary War, but this movement behind warning um, the townspeople at large that the British were coming, it didn't revolve around just one man. But we tend to think of it as one man just because of who Paul Revere was and, and his... Um, in his uh, stature in uh, the greater Massachusetts society. But we should be reminded that many other courier riders contributed to the overall advanced warnings to the townspeople behind the fact that, hey, the British are, are coming. So um, Concord is in much better shape than, um, say, Lexington. And I'll get to that part here in a moment. Now, late e a late evening ride uh, took place on April 18, 1775, which saw Paul Revere and William Dawes obtain intelligence from uh, Dr. Joseph Warren regarding uh, British troops making their way by boats from Boston bound for Cambridge. Of course, when I think of Cambridge, I think of, uh, well, there are, there are a large number of colleges and universities in the greater Boston, but if I could think of one that being in Cambridge, it's Harvard. So yes, uh, Dr. Joseph Warren has um, been able to obtain intelligence regarding British troops making their way by boats from Boston bound for Cambridge, which by land meant accessing roadways to Lexington and Concord. So if the British, uh, you know, it's interesting, they are making their way by boats. There was, um, at the North uh, Steeple Church in um, Boston's uh, North End, one of the, um, one of the strategies to uh, indicate uh, British movement was to light the, um, the lantern up at the uh, highest uh, point of the church and if one light was lit, that meant it was um, by land. And if two lights were lit, that meant um, by sea. So in other words, that uh, in other words, uh, the townspeople, including high level um, members, knew that, um, you know, they couldn't just they just couldn't sit there and wait and say, OK, when the British come, then we'll make our moves. We've got to know how they're moving. Yes, they're going to be moving by land. But is that the first step they're doing? No, it's uh, one one light was for by land and two was for by sea. Now, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the the, uh, the people of Concord were in better shape versus the people of Lexington. But the people of Lexington were unaware with what was happening uh, late on the late evening of uh, April 18, 1775. So therefore, Paul Revere and William Dawes um, went about doing a last-minute ride to help warn the people of Lexington, including nearby towns, to be prepared for what would lie in store, and that is an impending um, British advancement. 
besides express or rather i should say courier riders uh delivering messages townspeople also turned to bells drums alarm guns bonfires even trumpets as a means of faster communications from town to town well you know if the weather wasn't great folks i mean would you want express riders out there in the rain but at the same time, if they knew that they didn't have a choice but to be out in inclement weather, uh, risking their lives to ensure the safety of their townspeople, then I guess they would have had no other choice but to have done that. But it is good to have backup, like bells, drums, alarm, gun alarm guns, bonfires, any other modified means of faster communications that will allow uh, the Massachusetts townspeople to be one step ahead of the enemy. All, all the better. So, believe it or not, the system was so successful where people residing 25 miles from Boston were aware of the British Army's movements as they unloaded their boats in Cambridge. Despite the actions at Lexington Common, a.k.a. Lexington, on the morning of April 19, 1775, where eight militiamen died to another ten being wounded, Advancements behind getting the word out helped enable colonial militia troops to inflict heavy numbers on British troops at Concord, where 73 redcoats died and 174 were wounded. Well, it's probably fair to say that if, um, that if uh, Massachusetts militia forces had uh, put all their eggs into one basket by sending everybody to uh, Lexington, there would have been more casualties. Uh, more wound, more troops would have gotten wounded. And if that had been the case, who's going to be there to defend Concord? Not just defend Concord as a town, but what about all those the supplies of ammunition? If nobody's there to defend those uh, supplies, then it's an easy slam dunk um, victory for the British. And historians are pretty convinced now that the reason why Concord became such a vital uh, matter of concern was because General Thomas Gage's wife, or British General Thomas Gage's wife, her name was Margaret Kemble Gage. Uh, she was from New Jersey, and her family uh, was mixed in terms of loyalties. She had a couple of siblings who were loyalists, and she had siblings who were patriots. I can't imagine being in her family but her family was probably not anything out of the blue. There were countless other families during this time whose um, lines were of mixed loyalties. You, 50% could have been loyal to the crown and 50% uh, loyal, to, loyal to the patriot cause. But historians now are pretty convinced that Margaret Kemble Gage confided in private with Dr. Joseph Warren about the um, British um, movement towards Concord, where the ultimate objective was seizing all the ammunitions uh, supplies. Well, General Gage did learn about how someone had um, ratted him out, and he was not able to determine that it was from within his inner circle of uh, officers, but he did come to the sense that it was more than likely his wife, given his wife came from a back family whose loyalties were divided. Uh, General Gage sent his wife back to England. That's a, um, that's a price to pay right there. They still remained married, 
but Margaret Kemble Gage outlived her husband by at least uh, 35 years, and she died in 1824 around the age of 90 years old. So, yes, uh, revealing secrets can be painful, but sometimes, but if it's meant to um, not only protect your loved ones who are, say, loyal to a um, definitive cause, then that's the, that's the risk, or I should say the price that you're willing to pay to ensure that your extended family, whom you still care about, won't um, die at the hands of, um, of those whom, um, whom don't value uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. How long did it take uh, Captain Benedict Arnold and his second company of guards to learn about the fighting at Lexington and Concord? Believe it or not, folks, it only took them one day to uh, learn about the, uh, about the news at Lexington and Concord. The news uh, was received by courier, so when they received this news a day later, I mean, let's face it, folks, it was breaking news. Think about it, folks. Couriers bringing the news to um, to a town about, say, the British coming. Yeah, that's breaking news. You've got to take action. You don't have 48 hours. You need to get on the ball now. Shortly after receiving the news of what took place at Lexington and Concord, Captain Arnold heeded the call of duty, which meant sacrificing his family, including his business that he had been heavily dependent upon, for trading purposes, most notably with a nation, being that of England whose economic legislative practices made him and other New England merchants very uncomfortable. Think about all those measures with raising taxes to restricting um, what we would think of in today's time as uh, free trade. Benedict Arnold and other New England merchants viewed Parliament versus King George III as a bigger problem. They felt Parliament was more concerned about its own interests. In other words, the, that the members of Parliament were really only looking after their own pockets. They were only looking after themselves. They really weren't concerned about how people felt 3,000 miles across the ocean. Well, if I was Benedict Arnold and any other New England merchant man, I would feel the same way. So, it does turn out, though, folks, that um, that it it just so happens that King George III himself actually approved all the taxes to be imposed upon Britain's subjects in colonial North America. And he also approved Parliament's punishment of Massachusetts through those uh, coercive acts, a.k.a. intolerable acts. So, yes, you know, we all would like to believe that really it's not King George III that's a problem. We want to put all, point all the blame at Parliament. Yes, you know, King George III can't tell Parliament what to um, pass legislation-wise. He can go before Parliament and say, hey... These are uh, topics that you all should be that you all that I would recommend you all discussing in this session of Parliament, but the king himself doesn't have the authority to say I I forbid you from discussing this subject or I um, I um, decree or authorize that you must talk about the subject without fail. But at the same time, you know King George III's on the same boat as Parliament. Hey. You know, our coffers have been depleted for a while. We can't 
the colonists aren't uh, complying with us or the colony north our 13 uh, North American colonies are not complying with us they're ungrateful subjects we have tried everything and we still aren't getting um, any results but it might be fair to say that maybe Parliament finally did get some results with those uh, unfortunate uh, coercive acts who was uh, Captain Arnold's military um, superior whom also happened to be the commander of the New Haven militia I didn't know anything about this guy but I also know that there is a, a city in a state uh, that centuries ago in colonial times might as well have been considered Virginia but who was Captain Arnold's um, military superior whom just so happened to be the commander of the New Haven militia his name is General David Wooster and that's spelled W-O-O-S-T-E-R and I'm sure some of you are thinking why does that matter in terms of how his last name is spelled well if you ever hear of a place in Ohio called Wooster Ohio that is named for General David Wooster, who uh, did serve in the American Revolutionary War. And in case some of you are wondering where exactly Worcester is located in Ohio, it is located outside of a city uh, known as uh, Mansfield. General David Worcester was the officer whom provided Captain Benedict Arnold with keys, which allowed him access into the magazine house of course, you know, magazine house folks, that's not where magazines, reading magazines are stored. Your magazine house is where your gunpowder is found. That's where you would have access to rifles. The militia would have its access to rifles and uh, muskets, pistols, and any other means of um, essential provisions. So General Worcester was the one that authorized Captain Benedict Arnold um, access into the magazine house where all arms and gunpowder are stored. Arnold already recruited, had already recruited a handful of Yale College students whom were eager to join the fight. But yet these um, young uh, college students did not have the necessary provisions on them. So that's why Arnold has to not only go to the magazine house, but he has to get the permission of General Worcester. Massachusetts was requesting an army of 30,000 men not long after uh, what had unraveled at Lexington and Concord, the Connecticut, um, or rather the Connecticut um, colonies sought to contribute around 6,000 men. Thousands of men arrived into Cambridge. Given there were so many men in Cambridge, some units got turned away. Captain Arnold and his men had a 135-mile expedition which saw their route go north and east across a across Connecticut, including Arnold himself meeting with officers from General Israel Putnam. If you ever hear of Putnam, Connecticut, uh, refer, think of the Putnam family, and that would include uh, Israel Putnam, to a fellow named Colonel Samuel Parsons, whom expressed greater need for artillery at Boston. Well, if there is to be um, long-term... Um, engagement in Boston, I can see why artillery in the form of cannons would um, need to be uh, present. Colonel Parsons knew the town of Boston was ripe for siege operation to occur, but in order for the siege itself to be successful, there had to be sufficient supplies and artillery. And a siege is 
what we refer to as a military operation where enemy forces surround either a town or a building, but in this case, enemy forces being the British, their objective is to surround the town of Boston with the intent on cutting off all essentials, such as supplies, various supplies and provisions. Captain Benedict Arnold came up with the right solution by proposing an attack on Fort Ticonderoga, including uh, Crown Point in New York. Both forts were home to um, vast numbers of cannon, including supplies already stored. Each fort served as a vital water route north into Canada. And Benedict Arnold also happened to know that each of these forts had minimal numbers of armed troops stationed. So if you have minimal numbers of, arms, of armed troops, that is, on the enemy's side, is it fair to say that ambushes can succeed? Sure, they can succeed. I mean, you have to have the right leadership um, in order to um, conduct a um, proper ambush. But if the enemy does not have enough uh, men arming um, the uh, garrisons, being the uh, outside of the uh, fort, then they are going to become uh, sitting ducks. Benedict Arnold was very familiar with where uh, Forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point were located, given they weren't far from Lakes George and Champlain. Arnold knew if both forts got seized, then it would be to Patriot advantage where British communications between New York and Boston, including British Canada, could get severely hampered. Think about this, folks. If if we can um, act, if we could seize on both forts, that would really cut the British line of communication in half. You know, New York and Boston are vital, but at the same time, if we uh, can get a hold of everything possible at these forts then cutting off communications between New York and Boston is going to make things very uh, perilous for uh, the British. Whom else did Captain Arnold consult with once after he and his uh, commanding unit arrived into Cambridge, Massachusetts? None other than Dr. Joseph Warren, who was a member of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety, for those of you who aren't familiar with Dr. Joseph Warren, um, I would strongly recommend reading a book called uh, Founding Martyr. The life and death of, doc of Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's uh, forgotten hero, written by Christian de Spigna. I read that book a couple of years ago, and I must say it was a phenomenal read. People forget, and I have to point this out, folks, I've me I know I've mentioned it before, but for those of you who are new to my podcast series, especially with regards to the book topic series we're doing here, Dr. Joseph Warren was one of the most radical uh, leaders in the uh, movement behind uh, independence from England. However, his, um, however, uh, for a good period of time, he was, um, I mean, yes, he was a um, medical doctor. He uh, took care of... Uh, people from all different backgrounds, and he, his business was so successful, folks, that even those whom were loyal to the crown came to him seeking advice, and Dr. Warren did not turn them away. 
As a matter of fact, at one time, Dr. Warren was probably more respectable or was more respected by the British than Samuel Adams. I mean, that's uh, that's how I mean, that's how significant the differences are. I mean, don't get me wrong. Samuel Adams was an ardent patriot. Samuel Adams, um, the reason why he was so successful was because of his penmanship. He was a far better writer than he was a businessman. You know, yes, he inherited his father's uh, brewery. But the brewery faltered because of Samuel Adams's um, leadership and abilities. But the reason why you still see him on a, a, a Sam Adams bottle is because of how successful he was in terms of his writing, or I should say his penmanship. Dr. Joseph Warren, on the other hand, yes, a successful doctor, but also a successful businessman as well in, with regards to practicing medicine. But really, uh, to sum it all up, um, Dr. Joseph Warren's uh, break from from uh, being what I would call moderate neutral happened as a result of the Boston Massacre incident. Uh, not just so much the massacre itself, but what led up to it. Um, long story short, um, weeks before March 5th, 1770, um, customs collector uh, Ebenezer Richardson uh, fired into a crowd of angry protesters whom had uh, harassed him, and of course their actions weren't appropriate, but sadly an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Sidere was a, was among a handful of the uh, mob participants. Uh, Ebenezer Richardson fired what was called swan shot, which was meant to, um, to deter uh, those whom were creating disturbances of the peace. It was meant to um, scare them off, but sadly uh, Richardson's shot uh, struck this 11-year-old boy, Christopher Sidair. Uh, Dr. Warren uh, rushed him to his, um, to his um, medical office, tried in vain to save the boy, but sadly he died. Of course, uh, it would probably be fair to say in seven, by 1770 standards that uh, if a child made it past the age of 10, he or she was considered to be an adult. But the death of, of this 11-year-old um, shattered Dr. Joseph Warren to where he ultimately became a patriot. So if you ever have a chance to read that book, it's I strongly recommend it. So anyways, yes, Dr. Joseph Warren is a member. He's also a member of the Massachusetts Committee of Safety. Like Benedict Arnold, Dr. Warren um, believed as well that attacking forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point were essential regarding security concerns from provisions to waterway access. Arnold went before the Massachusetts Committee of Safety to state his case. The committee voted unanimously in going forward with Arnold's plan. May 3rd, 1775, Captain Benedict Arnold, not Captain, folks, he's now been promoted to Colonel Benedict Arnold. The night of May 3rd saw Colonel Arnold, including his two lieutenants, depart from Boston by going into western Massachusetts with objectives to recruit 400 men and attack Forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point as soon as possible. Let's forward three days afterward, May 6, 1775. Colonel Arnold and, two, and his two lieutenants arrive into the town of Stockbridge. And of course, when we always think of Massachusetts, we tend to think of the eastern part of the state, but there is the western part of Massachusetts, which does uh, border into what we now know as um, well, in, into uh, New York State around, say, Albany and um, 
and um, such uh, in places like right outside of Albany as well. So the town of Stockbridge is located in the Berkshire Mountains of western Massachusetts, which uh, touch the Massachusetts-New York state line. But here's the problem. Yes, they have arrived into Stockbridge, but Benedict Colonel Arnold and his lieutenants have are now they've now come to learn that another expedition behind seizing Fort Ticonderoga is already in the works. Now Arnold, you know, he's got reasons now to not feel happy. But Arnold is going to modify the situation. He's going to leave his two lieutenants behind whom will go about gathering the the necessary number of men being 400. May 8, 1775, Colonel Arnold met up with the Green Mountain Boys and volunteers from Massachusetts and Connecticut, whom were already well prepared in going forward with the same exact mission. I think we're going to be in for a conflict, folks, an internal one. Whom headed up the Green Mountain Boys? Ethan Allen. Ethan, not just Ethan Allen, but uh, members of his extended family. The Green Mountain Boys are a militia organization. They were created, it was, the organization itself was created in 1770 to resist New York's attempts to control the territory now called Vermont. And, and you know, Vermont, folks, is sandwiched right in between uh, New York and uh, New Hampshire, to the west of Vermont is New York, and to the east is New Hampshire. Prior to Vermont becoming a state in uh, 1791, New York and New Hampshire for years fought over the territory that, w that stood in between their states, being that of Vermont. If that tells you anything right there in terms of, of long-term disputed conflicts. Benedict Arnold was not thrilled to have learned that another mission was already in the works behind taking control of Fort Ticonderoga. Colonel Arnold's plan centered upon taking over the reins under Ethan Allen's command. Arnold provided to Ethan Allen, including his um, unit, written proof via commission from the Massachusetts Committee of Safety stating that he had sole right to lead expedition, but the Green Mountain Boys were vigorously opposed to what Arnold had um, stated. And if I were on the side of the Green Mountain Boys, I probably would feel the same way. You know, in other words, how dare this outsider come in, come in here and act like he's a know-it-all, act like he's in control of everything, when we've never even met him before, um, so think about it, folks. Here's this is where we're going to be seeing you know a breakdown in some communication. You know we don't have modern day technology. We don't have email. We don't have a text. Uh, in other words, we don't have conference calls. So basically, we're we've got commanders who are at their own disposal, thinking that they're the ones in charge. But yet now someone on the outside who shares the same cause, is now trying to assert their authority. In other words, I'm beginning to wonder who's on first base. <laughs> A little humor there. So anyways, um, yes, Benedict Arnold provided uh, proof from the Massachusetts Committee of Safety stating that he had the right to lead this expedition. The Green Mountain Boys have opposed 
And uh, and the reason why they oppose it is because they would only abide by Ethan Allen. Given Ethan Allen was their commander, Ethan Allen had his own set of instructions. So therefore, yes, the Green Mountain Boys are abiding by Ethan Allen. Arnold and Allen did compromise. They compromised where they agreed to both being at the front of their uh, troop units when attacking Fort Ticonderoga. This would be a joint command. Ethan Allen led. Benedict Arnold marched at his side. The attack on the fort was set for dawn come May the 10th. So before we know it, it there's going to be, um, hopefully this attack will go through. What does Ticonderoga mean? Ticonderoga is an Indian word referring to the following quotations. Place between two waters. What two bodies of water, folks? Lakes Champlain to the north, Lakes George and Lake George to the south. What do you know, folks? Uh, believe it or not, when my, my wife and I have been to New York's Adirondack um, Mountain region, uh, we went to Lake Placid, uh, home to the 1932 and 1980 Winter Olympics. Hard to believe it was 43 years ago this month that the uh, Winter Games in Lake Placid uh, took place. But uh, when my wife and I were in Lake Placid, uh, it'll be 13 years this summer, 13 years ago this summer, we happened to take a day trip to Fort Ticonderoga. We actually got to see a French and Indian War reenactment take place. Uh, that's something I'll always remember, and if I had the opportunity to go back to Fort Ticonderoga, I would go back in a heartbeat. But yes, I have been to Fort Ticonderoga, and I strongly recommend that, for those of you who haven't been, I strongly recommend that you go. Uh, Fort Ticonderoga, though, was formerly known as Fort Carillon, built by the French in 1755 during the infamous Seven Years' War. The French built it as a means of protecting the water route from uh, Lake Champlain to Lake George. Now, starting out, folks, with this um, planned attack, um, only a few boats got assembled. Just by 2 a.m. on May 10th, only 83 men got to the other side of Lake Champlain. Prior to Benedict Arnold and Ethan Allen going forward with the attack, just before dawn set in, the raid on Fort Ticonderoga commenced. A British sentry guard fired but missed his target. A second sentry guard intervened only to be assaulted by Ethan Allen. The second guard uh, pointed out right away where the commander's quarters were, did so in fear for his own life. Shortly afterwards, the surrender of Fort Ticonderoga had taken place. Uh, one person died being on the British side. But this uh, raid, given how quick it um, happened, it did prevail. It happened. May 11th, um, 1775, Ethan Allen wrote a letter to the Massachusetts Provincial Congress regarding the successful capture of Fort Ticonderoga. But we have a problem, folks. He never once mentioned Benedict Arnold's name. Boy, I tell you this, I tell you, Benedict Arnold, I think we're going to have to say now, and we're going to say it again, somewhere down the road, you all will probably be saying to yourselves, can this guy really catch a break? Whom can he trust? You know, who, whom can he trust? But at the same time, is it all about Benedict Arnold? That's a question for us to, 
for us to uh, ponder uh, because as we learn more, yeah, that question will come into play. So, yes, Benedict Arnold's name was never mentioned once. As for Benedict Arnold, he did write a letter to the Massachusetts Committee of Safety whom commissioned him providing a different uh, version of what uh, happened. The confusion behind whom was really in control at Ticonderoga left Arnold himself in an awkward setting. If I was in his shoes, I would feel as though I was in an awkward setting as well. The bigger question is, is how to resolve this matter when it's all said and done with. Now, during the midst of the uh, Ticonderoga expedition, did uh, Colonel Arnold come upon more than one man whom would become an enemy from within? As much as I wish I could tell you all, the answer being no, um, unfortunately the answer is yes. There were two men um, that um, Benedict Arnold came into uh, contact with um, during the Ticonderoga expedition. One just so happened to be by the name of John Brown, and it wasn't the famous John Brown who uh, led that raid on uh, Harper's Ferry. Of course, we know it is Harper's Ferry, West Virginia today, but when it happened uh, a century later in 1859, it was still uh, considered Harper. It was still considered Virginia, not Harper's Ferry, West Virginia, but Harper's Ferry, Virginia. So no, we're uh, back to where we need to be. But yes, there was one man named John Brown and the other being James Easton. Why are these two men important? Well, I, I will explain why. John Brown uh, attended Yale College and just so happened to meet Benedict Arnold during his time in school. He probably uh, went into Benedict Arnold's shop on numerous occasions. After all, there were um, student uh, books uh, for uh, for those attending, for those men attending uh, Yale College, so that's probably how they met. But uh, John Brown went on to become a lawyer and resided in Pittsfield, being that of western Massachusetts. February 1775 saw John Brown go north to Canada on a secret trip to lure Canadians into joining American colonists. He also studied Fort Ticonderoga's importance. Okay, well, I, I don't see anything wrong with him studying Fort Ticonderoga's importance. As for James Easton, he was from Pittsfield, Massachusetts. He was a tavern owner, but yet he struggled financially. I think it's fair to say there were a lot of people who struggled financially, not just before the war's onset, but even during the war, for a whole host of factors. James Easton served as the militia colonel, as a militia colonel from Massachusetts. James Easton disliked Benedict Arnold, and there was a reason why he disliked Arnold, and I, I can't blame the fella. Easton disliked Arnold due to how Colonel Arnold scolded him during the attack on Fort Ticonderoga, given he had fallen behind and was worried about uh, wet powder getting inside his musket. Well, if uh, wet powder did get inside your musket, then you're not going to be able to fire it off. Um, but it wasn't just that. Uh, the te tempers ensued to the point where Benedict, where Colonel Arnold went as far as challenging uh, James Easton to a duel. Gosh, I thought everybody was supposed to be united on this raid. 
why are why all of a sudden is the commander why all of a sudden is one of the commanders wanting to uh, engage in a duel with someone else in the troop unit is that not the proper way to be a gentleman <laughs> if that's not the proper way to be a gentleman i don't know what is but uh, the duel never happened but given that uh, mr uh, easton declined it but still but still uh, he endured arnold's humiliation this was something that neither uh, James Easton nor John Brown forgot. So is it fair to say that even John Brown himself endured some form of humiliation brought on by Colonel Benedict Arnold? Yes. Some people don't forget stuff like that. Um, for Benedict Arnold, uh, I, I think it's fair to say that we might be starting to see the beginning seeds of... Uh, of a double-edged sword. In other words, yes, Benedict Arnold's going to complain that there are those whom are getting um, promotions faster than he than he ought to be entitled to, and then Benedict Arnold's going to come uh, come into fire amongst those whom uh, feel as though Arnold has uh, not treated uh, officers above and below with the proper respect they deserve. So it's a double-edged sword, or I should say, a nasty tip of the iceberg. What action uh, did the Connecticut General Assembly take without notifying uh, Colonel Arnold? But yet Arnold himself became informed of the matter come May 31, 1775. The Connecticut legislature appointed Colonel Benjamin Hinman to lead a command post behind Forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point. Colonel Hinman's military abilities weren't strong like that of, ben like that of Benedict Arnold's, but the Connecticut legislature um, feels that perhaps it's time for a change. June 1st, 1775, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress gave Colonel Arnold the recognition he deserved for playing a vital part behind the takeovers of previous, previous held British posts at Ticonderoga and Crown Point. All very nice. June 14th, 1775, the Continental Congress agreed to take control of the army that was already assembled at Cambridge. The day, a day after, on the 15th, the Continental Congress appointed George Washington from Virginia as official Continental Army commander. And if there was anybody who, who we can thank for um, spearheading the uh, nomination process behind getting George Washington as um, chief Continental Army commander, thank Mr. John Adams of Massachusetts. He was the one that firmly believed that a Virginian should be leading this um, cause, given that Virginia uh, was not only the largest state, the largest of the 13 colonies, but that she had the most to gain, but also the most to lose. But, but a Virginian should have as vital of a role in this, um, great, in this um, justifiable cause, being that of independence. Now, uh, June 23rd, less than, less than or just shy of one week, the new uh, Continental Army commander, uh, being that of uh, General George Washington, arrived into Cambridge. It just so also happened to be, folks, that that was the same day that Colonel Arnold resigned from his post. He was forced to present accounting records of his expenses before the Massachusetts Congress. Arnold viewed the matter to be absurd, and I can't blame him, given that the Massachusetts Congress recently praised him for his achievements in New York. 
This is a double-edged sword. Arnold was very upset about having to turn over the forts and the men under him to not only to uh, Colonel uh, Benjamin Hillman or Hinman rather, but worse to men like John Brown and James Easton. You talk about a love-hate relationship there. I don't expect you all to know this person. Uh, I didn't know anything about him until I read the book, but his name was Walter Spooner. He was part of a three-man committee that was sent by the Massachusetts Provincial Congress to oversee the uh, forts, rather forts Ticonderoga and Crown Point with regards to their strategical value, the state of supplies, and most of all, to judge Benedict Arnold's conduct. The Spooner Committee interviewed men like James Easton, who told different who told a different version of events behind Colonel Benedict Arnold's conduct at Fort Ticonderoga. And to make matters worse, John Brown got promoted to rank of major in the Massachusetts force while under investigation. I tell you, these double-edged swords, or what I maybe would say double standards, um, they're a piece of work onto, it's a piece of work onto itself. Is it fair to say that um, accountability could have come into question during this time, even by the Continental Congress itself? Yes, it is a learning experiment, but even accountability and all this micromanaging, it is causing a lot of headache. Well, there was extensive lobbying activity against Benedict Arnold, and because of all this extensive lobbying activity, I don't know if it's for better or for worse, but it helped persuade the Continental Congress to call for Arnold's resignation. He stopped in Albany, New York on his way home to write a complete report behind his efforts in carrying out the assigned, uh, his assigned commission. Sadly, while at Albany, he received sad news. His wife, Peggy, died unexpectedly from coming down with a fever in early June 1775, he was miles away. He didn't have a chance to say goodbye, nor could he even make it, nor could he have, nor was he able to even make it back to her funeral. Think about it. No telephone. No way of knowing. Benedict, you've got to get home ASAP. Your wife is dying. Oh, I can't imagine being in the guy's shoes. I can't imagine not being able to say goodbye to a loved, not being able to say goodbye to a loved one. So think about the sacrifices that were made during this time. And even if he had gotten a letter saying that his wife was dying, and by the time he left, who's to say that he would have made it home in enough time? That's how uh, fragile life was in those times. So, and to make matters worse uh, or tragic, Samuel Mansfield, Peggy's father, for whom uh, Samuel Mansfield, he was the one that introduced Benedict to his daughter Peggy, he suddenly died three days after Peggy's passing. Hannah Arnold, Benedict's sister, is, is now the one who is is now the one who is having to look after uh, Benedict's three sons. Benedict Arnold didn't stay um, long in uh, New, in New Haven, Connecticut. Once um, returning home. His main focus at home uh, revolved around the handling, or I should say outstanding, his main focus revolved around handling outstanding matters. 
his sister Hannah went about managing the home to looking after his sons, including um, all business affairs. Kind of like how um, their mother had to do the same for their uh, alcoholic father. Uh, did Benedict Arnold shortly afterwards make his return presence to the cause for independence be known? Yes, he did. He fortunately came into contact with Philip Schuyler, whom the Continental Congress chose as one of its first four major generals. There is a county in New York State's Finger Lakes region called Schuyler County. It's named after the Schuyler family, and then there is a town outside of Albany called Schuylerville. So whenever you hear Schuyler County and uh, Schuylerville, you can think of, um, of a key American revolutionary figure. I should point out that the Schuylers were related to the uh, Van Cor were related to the Van Heusens, the Cortlands, and the Rensselaers of New York, all uh, as well as the Livingstons, all uh, very powerful uh, families whom owned vast um, land holdings along New York State's Hudson River Valley. So, um, yes, Benedict Arnold comes into contact with uh, Philip Schuyler, whom the Continental Congress chose as one of its first four major generals. Schuyler was appointed to command the Continental Army's northern department along the Albany-Hudson region. General Schuyler was aware of what had been said regarding Benedict Arnold's character, but General Schuyler sees things a little differently. He had his own sources to go to. To get, the real, to get to the real bottom of the story. One fellow named Barnabas Dean, whose brother, who happened to be the brother of, Connect, of Continental Congress Delegate Silas Dean, Barnabas revealed to uh, General Schuyler how Arnold had been taken advantage of, which resulted in the current state of mistrust. Boy, I tell you, we have to be reminded that, yes, there was con internal conflict from within not just the Continental Congress, but amongst our um, officers early on in this, um, in this uh, noble cause for independence. And I think it's fair to say that it will continue to progress. The bigger question going forward now is how will Benedict Arnold uh, make up for um, what had happened just a short while back? Well, we've covered a lot of ground um, in this episode. We uh, met our um, objective, um, and I will tell you all, folks, this was a six-page one. Usually I try to uh, do about five pages per podcast episode. Sometimes it has to be six, but we did meet our objective, and that's the most important thing. When I'm on the air again next, where we're going to be going is that we'll, we will be going into 1776, now, I do know that, yes, Benedict Arnold partook in an operation to invade Canada in 1775, and while that is important, uh, for time-constraint purposes, I feel that we need to uh, focus on um, 1776, not, not just because it's the year that we uh, officially renounce our uh, separation from England altogether, but we're going to learn about um, his we're going to learn about um, his um, adventures. I wouldn't say an adventure, but we're going to learn about his um, mission uh, to protect Lake Champlain. Because before we know it, we will be uh, revisiting Saratoga. So that's why I feel it's important to um, shift gears and uh, start talk and focus on the next uh, podcast segment that will include uh, talking about the Lake Champlain campaign. Thank you for your time as always, and thank you for being such ardent listeners. 
wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe, and I look forward to being back on the air again next time. Take care for now.